This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Lots of arrests today as police move in on people protesting the coastal gas link pipeline. We'll start at the protest camp in northern B.C. at the heart of the blockade. Officers are enforcing a B.C. Supreme Court injunction preventing any blockade of pipeline workers from accessing their construction site. Sarah McDonald has the latest. The last holdout in a long-brewing battle over pipeline politics and a symbol of defiance and resistance of Canadian law penetrated Monday by RCMP. Members armed with the injunction they came tasked to enforce on behalf of the energy giant eager to get shovels back in the ground, signaling the end of a long-simmering standoff on Indigenous territory in northern B.C. for now. We're here to enforce the injunction. This isn't something that uh, we can push back. This isn't uh, an opportunity for us to wait. Uh, this is a court-ordered injunction. This must be enforced. Seven more people fiercely opposed to the multi-billion dollar natural gas pipeline slated to run right through this land, arrested for refusing to leave it to make way for workers to continue construction. With more than two dozen pipeline opponents now arrested in less than a week and the road beyond the RCMP's controversial and seemingly arbitrarily demarcated exclusion zone now clear of obstructions. The question is how long it will stay that way. The livelihoods of some of the project's proponents and contractors depend on that injunction remaining impactful. The benefits of our people working out there, that they, they have gainful employment and if they can provide for their families and not depend on the system. This deeply divisive pipeline driving a wedge through Wet'suwet'en Nation, backed by its elected chiefs but not its hereditary ones, promising jobs and funding in return for access to unseated territory. We will always stand our ground. We'll never give up. Something some of those with jurisdiction over it. We're fighting for everybody, the fish and the, and the four-leggers and the flyers. These arrests may mark the finale of this latest chapter, but the tug of war between Indigenous and Canadian law is far from over. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Well, police in Vancouver and Delta also moved in on anti-pipeline protesters who've been blocking entrances to the port of Vancouver for four days. They made dozens of arrests. As Aaron MacArthur reports, these were just two of a number of protests across B.C. and Canada. When wet sweating is under attack, what do we Just after 5 a.m. Monday and the police moved in. The Vancouver police will arrest and remove any person who violates this court order. Demonstrators have been camped in front of the port entrance at Clark and Hastings since Thursday. Vancouver police enforcing a court-ordered injunction granted to the Port Authority Sunday. Anyone who didn't move to the sidewalks was detained. Vancouver police say 43 people were taken into custody. We are not defenders! We are not protesters! 
There were arrests in Delta, too. A blockade at the entrance to Delta Port. One of dozens of protests across the country. Canada has just keeps repeating the history of not properly negotiating with Indigenous people. On the island, a blockade across Highway 19 sparked anger from local residents. One man in a truck, dangerously, tearing through the barricades. It's not as simple happening. as you think it is, okay? It is. No, it's and not. you know it is. You need, your hands are tied, mine are. Uh, these guys managed to sneak around a barrier to the side. No one will show their faces. They have, actually, it seems like zero understanding of what this issue even is actually about. But I can't see how this is affecting the pipeline. I mean, they should be protesting the company or something, not inconveniencing the public. From Calgary to Winnipeg to Kingston, people disrupted transportation links, including via rail service between Toronto and Montreal. Unless the RCMP retreat from Wet'suwet'en territory, demonstrators say expect more disruptions to key economic infrastructure. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry is live in Victoria, where, as you just saw, there is a protest on the steps of the legislature. Mm -hmm. uh, and we understand now also um, uh, the protest has moved to the bridges, I understand, uh, Bay Street Bridge and Johnson Street Bridge. Keith, what's happening there, and especially uh, the timing of this with the throne speech tomorrow? Yeah, just a brief update. A number of protesters have left the, the protest camp here at the legislature and, as you mentioned, uh, blocked both of the bridges in connecting uh, Victoria to uh, Vic West and ultimately Esquimalt. So Johnson Street Bridge is behind a blockade, as is the Bay Street Bridge. Now, those protesters are expected to come back here to the legislature, and here's what they're going to be coming back to. This is more than just a little protest. This has now become a camp of sorts. Uh, there's a, a significant amount of infrastructure that's being built uh, at, on the front steps of the legislature. Uh, so they've been gathering there for some time, but they've got tents now, two full tents full of food and supplies that will allow them to stay there uh, for some time. They've been there for a few nights and they're going to be staying there for a few nights as well. One of the problems that has emerged, at least from a security standpoint, is on the front steps, and we've shown this before, is a, uh, a ceremony, what they call a sacred fire, ceremonial fire, campfire, that's been burning 24-7 uh, uh, since this protest began. You can see the smoke there. Uh, that's been drifting up into the offices. It's now a concern this may pose a health and safety challenge for this protest camp to be to conti uh, continue at least with that fire in place we've seen a lot of protests here over the years sophie of course on a number of causes but uh, we've never seen one of the front steps and we've never seen one with a ceremonial fire uh drifting smoke into the building so it's a fluid situation keith obviously uh you know now that they moved to the bridges and we have that throne speech mm -hmm. tomorrow what do you anticipate will happen there's a lot of apprehension here. I've been talking to security all day. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen, whether they're going to try to literally block people from getting into the legislature. There is going to be a massive rally at 1 o'clock. I'm also told that uh, security is slowly amassing details and material to put in front of a judge at some point. Not tomorrow, I don't think, but over the next coming days to seek an injunction to have these, uh, this protest move, uh, the protest camp removed permanently. One of the things I've seen, I noticed the protesters walking around the building today with a uh, sort of a, a large paper, piece of paper making notes of where all the entrances are in front in the legislature entry points the that a picture of that has been taken by security that will be one of the documents put in front of a judge to say they're planning to breach the building illegally and that will further strengthen their, their argument in front of a judge to get an injunction all right well we're going to keep an eye obviously on what happens tomorrow but um yeah. more immediately tonight with the ongoing protest uh, in victoria keith thank you all right
A tentative deal has been reached in the eight-month forestry labor dispute. Labor Minister Harry Baines reappointed special mediators Vince Reddy and Amanda Rogers last week after Western Forest Products and United Steelworkers failed to get a deal done. WFP's president says he's pleased to have a fair agreement during a challenging time for the forestry industry. The union is recommending members ratify the contract. Construction on the new Patella Bridge is set to begin later this year. Fraser Crossing Partners, a consortium of seven companies, has won the bid to build the replacement bridge between New Westminster and Surrey. Ted Trenecki looks at plans for this new crossing and the timeline for opening. Another announcement regarding the new Patola Bridge with the only information that is new is that the contract has now been awarded. People deserve better and they deserve bridges that are safe and free of tolls. The Premier saying the price tag is still just under $1.4 billion and yes, it's still only four lanes, two each way, despite calls from the Surrey Board of Trade wanting a six-lane span. A four-lane bridge with four real lanes was an appropriate way to start and to have uh, full passenger, uh, foot passenger and bicycle infrastructure on either side so in the event of expansion in the community the bridge can go to six lanes. And with today's announcement, another opportunity to display why this is one of three government projects to fall under the new Community Benefits Agreement, where only members of the building trades can work. The province saying it's all part of their plan to train tomorrow's workforce. With so many advantages to a trade career, uh, it should be considered a more viable option in, in the professional world. But that's not how the independent contractors and businesses association sees it. It's not fair and it's discriminatory, it's unnecessary, it's costing taxpayers more money, workers are losing opportunities, and construction contractors based in BC building a business are effectively frozen out of these projects. We believe that the net benefits of the project is in the output. We get a good bridge, we get trained people, and currently uh, we're below budget uh, based on the tendering process. <laughs> Previously, the NDP admitted the CBA could add up to 7% of the cost of construction. The independent contractors, who are suing the province over the CBA, claims that adds about $100 million to the cost of the Patello. The project is on track to open in the fall of 2023. Ted Trinacki, Global News. Right now, though, it's being called a crisis for B.C. condo owners. Stratas are being hit with insurance rate hikes as high as 300 percent, along with similar increases in deductibles. Now, as John Waugh reports, to help limit the impact of those skyrocketing costs, the Insurance Brokers Association is calling for changes to the province's Strata Property Act. When Mike Pauls first bought into this Abbotsford Strata, this peaceful view was the main perk. I feel for the people that live in this building, uh, a lot of them are retired on fixed incomes. Now coming out here, he can't help but think of the sky-high insurance premiums. Residents in this building are being forced to pay. We had to borrow from all of the, the contingency reserve funds to pay for this premium. And tomorrow, when we have our uh, special general meeting, uh, we need to pass the vote by a 75% margin, I believe. Uh, to enact a special levy to pay back those funds. That special levy in the ballpark of a thousand bucks per unit because the insurance premiums jumped more than three and a half times from 66000 to $241,000. These families are in panic mode. They're, they're in a major crisis. Tired of feeling the brunt from being the bearer of bad news, the Insurance Brokers Association of BC 
is hoping legislation that would cap loss assessments to $50,000 and a clear divide between strata and unit insurance would keep underwriters from dropping their coverage. The biggest question is how do we get capacity? How do we get insurance companies to want to insure strata buildings again in BC? Strata owner advocate Tony Giovantu says kowtowing to big insurance companies is not the answer. That isn't going to solve the insurance problems. It's just simply going to limit the risk for the insurers that are covering them. He suggests any new legislation should force the insurance industry to be more transparent instead of leaving strata owners with sticker shock. It's the lack of notice, the lack of planning, and then, of course, the great surprises around the money. For Mike Pauls, one thing he does agree with is that government needs to intervene but isn't sure he can trust insurance brokers to lead the way. Maybe they should give a kickback back to us for having to pay that high premium. For now, he says strata owners are financially being held hostage in an effort to insure their homes. John Hua, Global News. Whistle, the very first ride-hailing company to be approved in B.C., officially launched in Whistler this morning. The company is kicking off with 10 drivers, all of them Whistler locals. The company had a soft launch in Tofino February 5th. Whistle says it plans to expand operations to Squamish and Pemberton in the near future and will focus on resort towns. Because we're local, we're a smaller company, and we're really focusing on the smaller towns of Whistler, Squamish, Pemberton, and then we launched last week in Tofino. So we're not you know, focusing on Metro Vancouver at all. We, we really think the real demand for ride sharing is in resort communities because you have a small town with the whole world coming to visit you on weekends. So where, where we need extra cars is actually in Whistler and Tofino on those peak weekends and holidays. Well, both Uber and Lyft are also approved to operate in Whistler, it's still not known when the ride-sharing giants will launch in the resort town. Meantime, ride-sharing giant Lyft is expanding its operations in Metro Vancouver. Starting today, Lyft will serve the entire city of Vancouver, along with Richmond, New Westminster and North Surrey. Lyft says it's able to expand its service area thanks to more drivers joining the company. Lyft says nearly 80% of its drivers live outside the city of Vancouver. Well, where do you turn when you have a car with countless repair issues? Me, I turn to Chris. <laughs> and I, I sometimes can <laughs> when, help. When there's a lemon, what do you do? <laughs> That's right. Well, Canada doesn't have lemon laws like the U.S., but it does have a national resolution program to address vehicle disputes. The question is, is it effective? Consumer Matters reporter Andrew here is here now to tell us a little more. Well, the key here is to be very organized and keep all your records when it comes to your car. Thanks, Chris. The Canadian Motor Vehicle Arbitration Plan, or CAMVAP, is a national not-for-profit organization whose members are representatives of the automobile industry, the provincial and territorial governments, and consumers, and it's available at no charge to the consumer. Tonight, we meet one car owner who went through the process. While he ended up having a positive outcome, critics argue the program is no substitute for a true lemon law. The level of frustration is great when you buy a new car and then you have these issues and, and your dealer or the manufacturer won't resolve them for you. That was Doug Ganshorn's experience when he says he purchased a brand new vehicle only to discover his car was consuming oil. Making matters worse, he was getting little cooperation from the manufacturer. The one issue we had with it consuming oil, they wouldn't fix it. 
Frustrated, Doug came across CAMVAP, the Canadian Motor Vehicle Arbitration Plan, a national program which allows disputes between consumers and vehicle manufacturers to be resolved through binding arbitration. Arbitrators can order the manufacturer to repair the problem at the manufacturer's expense, order the carmaker to buy back the vehicle, reimburse for previous repairs or for certain out-of-pocket expenses, or an arbitrator can rule the manufacturer has no liability for your claim. It doesn't cost anything to do it, so I said really we had uh, nothing to lose. Doug wanted a buyback and says he spent countless hours preparing his case before it went before an arbitrator. And I had kept from day one all my invoices whenever I had the car vehicle in for service. And it's very important to have all those so you've got proof as you're going through the CAMVAP process. According to the latest CAMVAP award statistics, in 2018, out of the 169 cases, there were 42 buybacks, 45 repairs, and 76 cases where the arbitrator ruled the manufacturer had no liability. The nonprofit Automobile Protection Association, which helps consumers with car-related issues, says while it does recommend CAMVAP on occasion, it says on a percentage basis, relatively few vehicles are bought back. If you have a repair problem, it can be very helpful. As a place to get a bad car refunded, uh, returned, it's a bit risky and you don't get a full refund. In some cases, the CAMVAP offer is not that much higher than the market value of the car because the formula they use is also um, uh, depreciates the car quite quickly. Doug Ganshorn was awarded a buyback. $2,700 was deducted for the first year he had the car for personal use. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but maybe it'll help get the repairs done, or in my case, the buyback. Again, preparation is key. If you decide to pursue arbitration, make sure you have a record of important documents like service records, invoices, receipts, out-of-pocket expenses, even witness testimony. You can bring anyone to the hearing who has relevant information to help prove your case. For more information, go to camvap.ca. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks very much, Anne. Oh, Dramatic video from Brazil shows houses being buried in a mudslide. A man living on the outskirts of Sao Paulo rushed outside when he heard screaming and captured the slide crashing down a hillside. Firefighters rescued a girl trapped in one of the homes and so far no other injuries or fatalities are reported. A strong winter storm named Kira that battered Europe with hurricane force winds and heavy rains has killed at least five people. Meteorologists expect continued gusts of up to 150 kilometers an hour in some areas. Several regions of France have been put on orange safety alert. That's the second highest for strong gusts. In England, the storm covered seaside picnic tables and play areas with several feet of foam. Some remarkable new video of a bus crash in Ohio that miraculously left only two students with minor injuries. We showed you this video last week of the bus flipping onto its side after swerving into the ditch. Well, tonight, video from inside the bus shows how frightening it was. Thirteen students and the driver were all on board, and as bad as that looked, as we said, only two students were slightly injured. 
Construction in Italy has reached a milestone as crews race to replace the span that collapsed back in 2018. 43 people died when the bridge in Genoa collapsed suddenly. Crews are now working around the clock to complete its replacement and work has passed the halfway mark now. The challenge for builders is to finish the bridge by summer to re-establish the highway connection between the port city in northern Italy and France. Now, the B.C. Centre for Disease Control says there are still just four confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus in B.C., and 264 people have been tested for the disease. Meantime, a second plane with Canadian evacuees from the epicenter of the novel coronavirus in China is now on its way back to Canada. The flight follows last week's first evacuation mission and is carrying 185 passengers, according to a tweet by Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. As with the first flight, the plane will land in Vancouver for refueling before carrying on to CFB Trenton in Ontario. The evacuees will be quarantined for two weeks, along with the 200 or so people who left China on the first flight last week. Uh, the measures that we, are, we have taken on, uh, as recommended by the World Health Organization and our own chief medical officer, uh, are uh, effective till now. Uh, we continue to monitor the situation internationally, work with our partners and particularly the WHO to make sure that everything we're doing uh, is consistent with what needs to happen to keep Canadians safe. There are now a total of 15 confirmed Canadian cases of the virus, seven here at home and another eight on a cruise ship under quarantine off the coast of Japan. Now, in China, it has been the deadliest day yet, with nearly 100 more dead in 24 hours. That brings the death toll to more than 1,000, with more than 43,000 people sick, including those on the cruise ship quarantined off Japan. With 11 Americans among the 65 new cases, the number diagnosed on this ship nearly doubled overnight. Oregon resident Rebecca Frazier found out she had the virus on board the Princess Diamond, now feared to be more of a floating incubator than luxury cruise liner. Confined to her hospital room, she's the first with coronavirus to speak out. It was a very surreal experience to be told that you have this virus that, you know, as far as I knew, could be deadly. Authorities suited up in protective gear awaited more than 130 of her infected fellow passengers escorted off the ship for treatment. About 3,600 people remain on board, quarantined since last Monday. Social media shows the growing tension in Wuhan, China, the coronavirus epicenter, where masked police dragged this woman and her family with the virus to pop-up hospitals and quarantine centers like these. Trucks spraying a mix of water and alcohol have doused just about every corner of the city. And four police officers arrested this woman for failing to wear a mask. Here in Hong Kong, extreme caution is being exercised. Travelers from anywhere in mainland China are quarantined for 14 days. Violating quarantine is now a criminal offense. Deborah Patter, CBS News, Hong Kong.
In Health Matters tonight, there is encouraging news. One year after the province announced it would expand access to a life-changing surgical procedure to treat Parkinson's disease. The Ministry of Health is releasing exclusive information to Global News on access to deep brain stimulation, or D DBS. Richard Zussman has the details and reaction from people living with the condition. It has been described by many as life-changing. An eight-hour surgery called deep brain stimulation to treat Parkinson's disease. If we choose the correct patient, we can make a tremendous difference. We can put uh, people back to work. We can keep people out of the emergency department. A year ago this week, the province committed to more than double the operations done in the province every year. And they have, going from 31 procedures to 72. Wait times to have the surgery have gone down by 13 weeks and will continue to go down. Right now, we're doing more procedures than the number of people added to the wait list. Uh, we can make more uh, disabled people independent. But the challenge is just getting people on the waiting list. Mark Hutchinson says his wife Angela has been waiting four months. It may only take 40 weeks to get the surgery, but it takes much longer just to be approved to have the operation. We're now talking three and a half to four years. So that's a bit of a challenge that we've got. Now. I'm not really sure why that is the case, but that's what we've been informed by uh, the specialist. The province is trying to address that issue as well. They're currently looking for a surgeon to add to the one they have to do the surgeries. Hutchinson hopeful help will come for his wife soon. So it really will be life-giving for her and it'll be great for her to, to be able to have a, a more, sen more normal sense of life. What the procedure does is use electrical impulse to stimulate a target area in the brain. A doctor must implant the electrical stimulation equipment. British Columbia's commitment to the surgery has helped, but nowhere near what is needed for the province's population. We also know that uh, we, uh, from the Ministry of Health uh, technology report that they did several years ago, that uh, comparable populations across Canada, that really we should have 155 uh, such surgeries being provided. Frustrating news for Hutchinson and his wife to hear. Hopeful their day for surgery will come much sooner than they expect. Richard Zussman, Global News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Some environmentalists are calling out the B.C. government over what they say is a failure to follow through on a flashy announcement more than four years ago. Then-Premier Christy Clark announced a landmark deal to protect B.C.'s Great Bear Rainforest. But critics say since then, the promise of strict logging standards has turned out to be an empty one. Linda Aylesworth reports. Before the Great Bear Rainforest on BC's central coast got its name, it was referred to as the Mid-Coast Timber Supply because 95% of this, the largest remaining temperate rainforest in the world, home to the iconic spirit bear, was open to logging. In the 90s, there was a big concern that most of the area could be logged by industry and there were many protests and boycott calls leading to talks. Those talks eventually led to the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement in 2016. 
a number of promises were made at the time by the logging industry as well as uh, the BC government that safeguards would be put into place to protect some of the biggest, oldest trees as well as rare and endangered ecosystems. This decision protects 85% of the old growth and second forest, second forest growth. So what became of those promises? Half of the Great Bears forests were protected and became off-limits to logging. But uh, the other half, about 1.5 million hectares, that's about half the size of Vancouver Island, still needs reserve plants. Reserve plans that, in the case of the regions highlighted in red, should have been in place two years ago. As a result... And what we are picking up is that they are logging in areas that they really should be setting aside because they're rare and uh, endangered old, old growth systems. And there's no monitoring system in place. It's a huge concern that we are not on track. If we continue on this pace, we will not be able to ensure the ecological health of the rainforest. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. The B.C. government tonight says it is aware of the concerns of environmental groups and it is listening. The Ministry of Forest, Lands and Natural Resources says it met with several groups about the issue today. Just a reminder of how beautiful so many parts of this province are. All right, uh, let's take a look at the weather now. Christy joins us with a look ahead to the forecast. and. Mm -hmm. Yes, memories of last year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember this snowstorm? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Unofficial reports of 30 centimeters in Delta, although at the airport they reported 10 centimeters on this day last year. So, uh, yes, this is uh, Brad's little kitty there. Apparently he says this is a type of breed that li actually likes snow, so I don't know. But it kicked off a six-day stretch of snowfall after snowfall after snowfall and we basically had snowfall on the ground for more than a week about 10 days now this though was the scene outside today so we are th so thankful now i was hoping for three days i was hoping i could tell you we had three days straight of uh, sunshine through the weekend it certainly was sunny but we did have a few showers early in the morning on saturday so technically it's only two day stretch and that is so far the longest stretch of sunny weather that we've had since the beginning of uh, december so we certainly enjoyed it with uh, needing our sunglasses, but we won't need them tomorrow. A little bit of a disturbance moving down. It is going to bring in a chance of showers to the south coast. Not much, but a little bit of cloud and certainly a little bit more drizzly than what we saw today. And then we'll be, we'll be back to sunshine as we head into our Wednesday. So just an idea of how much moisture you'll see. Southwestern sections likely not much. It's mainly east metro Vancouver and then through the Fraser Valley. And it's only a couple of millimeters. But still, you may not need your sunglasses tomorrow. Across the northwest, you'll need sunglasses. Light snow in through the BC Peace River area, five centimeters. Some rainfall in through the uh, central interior region. Snowfall in through the Columbia area, five centimeters. Sunny breaks in through the Okanagan Valley and for our region, a chance of showers tomorrow. But we're back to sunshine on Wednesday for one more day and then we're in for the rain, everyone. Unfortunately, yes, back to the rain. And I'll leave you with one last beautiful shot, the sunrise in Chilliwack. Keep that memory in your brain. Yeah. Just like we are still buzzing because of the memories from an amazing weekend. Yeah, it's true. Yesterday, it's true. British Columbians once again showed their generosity, didn't they, at the 54th annual Variety Show of Hearts Telethon. That was the big reveal. More than $5.5 million raised, all thanks to viewers across this province. That edged out last year's total by a few thousand dollars. It was, as Chris mentioned, an incredible day with all the money supporting children facing serious illness or special needs across BC. 
thank you so much for donating and tuning in yesterday. Of course, once again, you've always come through. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing oh, Alvin moment. Alvin and his feet. Going old school tonight. You're going old school? Rogers. Well, well yes, you're going to wear the blacks again. The black uniforms oh, no, and the skate. Cities, but, yeah. Oh, them too. <laughs> I love the black uniform with the skate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, when the Canucks play Nashville tonight, they will not have Brock Besser who they say upper body, I think it's a shoulder injury. They're not saying really a lot about it, except he'll miss the next two games. Elias Pettersson apparently will play, but he took a beating on Saturday against Calgary. He was like a pinata out there. He missed the optional skate this morning, but they say that doesn't mean anything. However, Justin Bailey, who scored 24 goals in Utica this year, will play. You know, like I said in the minors, I've, I've scored I've scored 20 goals just about every single year. So I think they know I can score. Um, but I think at this level, there's guys that can, you know, score at, at high levels. And I think for me, one day, that's that's you know, hopefully will be in the cards. But um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm doing the role that I need to do in order to break in. Well, tonight, three of the four players who've had their numbers retired by the Canucks: Marcus Naslin, Stan Smeal, and Trevor Linden. Linden making a rare appearance after being fired by the Canucks. He'll be there tonight. No Pavel Bure, though. They'll have a legend ceremony. Then, of course, on Wednesday, they'll be joined in the rafters by the Sedins, who sat down with Jay this morning. Well, we're inside Rogers Arena. We're inside the Legends locker room. Henrik, Daniel, congratulations. A full week of saluting. Are you going to be able to handle it? No, it's six days too, too, too long. But I know it's going to be fun. We're going to enjoy it as much as possible and uh, take it day by day and try to have as much fun as we can. Combined, you guys played just under 3,000 games together. To go up, have your numbers retired side by side, it seems like the perfect way to really capture your career. Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't be more honored. Uh, and to go up with the four, four people that are up there already, it means, means a lot to us. Three of them were, we have a personal connection with, and, and uh, all three meant a lot to us. So uh, it's going to be special. Throughout your careers, you've always been about the team. Very seldom when we'd ask you about your accomplishments, would you, would you recognize them or want to be singled out? You told me off camera that when I asked you, are you going to allow yourself to observe this, you said you ran into Marcus at the, at the airport. What did he tell you? He told, told me to enjoy the week. Uh, he said it's something, I mean, you get uh, nervous. You, you have a lot of uh, family and friends in town. Uh, you want to make sure they have a good time. But he, he told us to, to just be in the moment and, and enjoy every minute. We've followed your careers for almost two decades. We see what you do on the ice. We've also reported what you've done off the ice. To be saluted all week long by an entire province, and for that matter, the world. I mean, we have 10 members of the media from Sweden that comes here to cover this. Does he mean a little bit more? Uh, no, I think it would have meant a lot anyways, but it's, uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention on this, and, and uh, the Swedish media is interested in so it's... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's a big deal back, back there as, as well, and it's, but it's uh, just to have this, uh, this week and the way they, they're honoring us, and Canucks are do, always doing a, such a great job with, with these things, so it's, uh, it's going to be fun. It's funny because you don't look like legends, nowhere near you, you know, when you think of the age of a legend, but have you looked at your career, the body of work now, because... You're two, two years into retirement. It really was a cold break from the franchise. Have you allowed yourself to, to look at your accomplishments and say, you know what, it was a pretty good career? We're super proud of what we did with our, 
our talent and and uh, how far we we I think we did the best with the talent we got and that's that that we can be very proud of uh, all the awards and stuff it's uh, I guess uh, it's nothing you you walk around thinking of how much well, you guys know how much I respect you. I've, I've told you that throughout your career. On behalf of everybody in the province of, of British Columbia, thank you for all that you've done on the ice, off the ice. Enjoy the week. Legends night tonight at Rogers Arena when they take on the National Predators. Their jerseys go up Wednesday. Six o'clock is the ceremony. Doors open here at Rogers Arena, opening up at 4.30. Now, a few years ago, we did a story on why players have certain numbers. And in that story, Henrik told the tale of the Sedin's numbers and how Daniel wasn't the first in the family to wear 22. Daniel was five and I was 22 and then when we, when we got moved up to, to an older age group I, I got number 12 and Danny got number, no I got number 20 and Danny got number 12. But I, I, was, I was number 22 from, from the get-go. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so how did the numbers come about that you've worn for the Canucks for all this time? 22 and 33? Uh, from our draft year. Uh, Danny got picked second and, and me third and that's what Burke wanted. <laughs> now you know. Okay, big trade in the NHL today. The uh, Penguins have wanted Jason Zucker for a while. Actually, the Canucks apparently were interested in him last year as well. But he goes to the Penguins for Galchenyuk, who a couple of years ago Montreal looked like he was a budding star. Now has just flipped around from team to team. They also get a first-round draft pick from Pittsburgh. There will now be two players who learned the game of golf at Ledgeview in Abbotsford, who will play this year's Masters. Adam Hadwin and Nick Taylor, who qualified yesterday with that win in the uh, Pebble Beach Pro-Am, his second win on the PGA Tour. His first was 2014. Between then and yesterday, there were many times Taylor almost lost his PGA card. But this past week, he led the whole way, round one to round four, and he played the final round, staring down Phil Mickelson. I, I definitely wasn't the crowd favorite. I was expecting that, but um, yeah, it was you know it was great to play with Phil. He was awesome all day. Uh, I was probably more nervous before the round than actually when I was playing. So um, yeah, when I made a few putts early, I think it settled me down, and it was nice to get off to a great start. What did it mean to have your family behind the green when it was over? Yeah, it was amazing. It was uh, when I won in Sanderson. Uh, my wife wasn't there, and to have her here now with my son Charlie is it's uh, it's an incredible feeling. You do snow report for this evening. Not a lot of new snow, but there will be a few areas that will get some in the next 24 hours. Whistle Black Home Grouse, Cypress and Sasquatch, nothing new but a healthy basis for this time of year. Manning Park picked up four centimeters of new snow. Revelstoke a little bit also. Fernie, nothing new but Kicking Horse picked up one. Big White, two centimeters of new snow. Silver Star and Apex, nothing new, but Sun Peaks has three centimeters. Mount Washington, nothing new. Whitewater, six. Red Mountain, minus six right now. And Powder King, minus eight. Well, this week we are reflecting on the magic that happened in Vancouver and Whistler 10 years ago. The 2010 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games were a massive undertaking led by Irish-born John Furlong. As CEO of the Vancouver Olympic Organizing Committee, Furlong became the face of the Games very early on. But what you might not know is John never wanted the job until he was thrust into it anyway. City of Vancouver. It's the moment that changed everything for the city of Vancouver and for John Furlong. When the city was awarded the Games, Van Ock needed a CEO. Never imagined it, uh, didn't think about it, didn't allow myself to think about it. It was a massive responsibility, staging the Games and managing a budget of over $1.7 billion. At first, Furlong was an unwilling candidate for the job. 
first of all, I wasn't born in Canada. I mean, I'm, I think I may be the first guy ever that can actually say that he wasn't born in the country that the games were staged in and, and became the leader of the, of the project. So I never really thought about it. I just thought I had an obligation to help. You got the luck of the Irish today, John? Furlong had been a big part of the winning bid, but when he was finally named CEO, some, including Dick Pound of the IOC, didn't think Furlong could handle running a massive corporation. The headline in the Vancouver Sun stung. Vancouver Sun basically had quoted Dick Pound as having said, you know, they picked the wrong guy. This is not right. And, and I, I was stunned. And he said, we're running with a story tomorrow morning that kind of gave anything to say. And I can't remember what I said, but it was something to the effect of, you know, I think I'll let the work do the talking. And, um, but I was stunned and disappointed and hurt. But despite some early concerns about budget, Furlong is proud of how the games turned out. And eventually, he got some vindication. But at the end of the games, when it was all over, um, we had a big dinner and everybody was kind of saying goodbye to each other and, and he apologized. <laughs> as, as Thanks, Dick. Yeah, exactly. And we've got lots of stories lined up through the week and we're trying to do things that maybe you haven't heard before, mm. perspectives you hadn't, haven't heard before. A little before. behind the scenes. A little behind the scenes yeah. stuff. And what do you got? You got well, tomorrow we'll talk about the torch relay, which, like mm -hmm. the Olympics, itself was a huge undertaking. Mm -hmm. yeah. They right. went basically from Victoria all the way across through the north and then all the way back in time. Yeah. And then Gretzky got in a pickup truck and they went down and right. The I forgot about that. Yes, That's on a right. very rainy night, the pickup yeah. truck. Yeah, oh, and he looked uh, displeased to say the least. And, and we'll the talk thing to him. didn't lift, right? Oh. Yeah, there, well, were, one there of them, was yeah. that too. But, yeah. but the fact that the torch got there and back and it was brilliant, over 12,000 people carried it, including you. Great story about Rick Hansen and his role in the thing, too, coming up this week. Okay, good night.